the life-giving Word of God together, I hope to accomplish two things. First of all, I want to encourage you to hold on to and develop a thoroughly biblical worldview. Because if you have a biblical worldview, you'll be able to better interpret the details of your life and address them in a God-honoring fashion. And secondly, I hope to encourage in your hearts a greater appreciation of the depth of God's love for you and the extent of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. But before we start that journey, I want to remind you of something I've mentioned to you before. Our first PowerPoint this weekend will come prior to our text and our title. Familiarity with God's truth can easily become the enemy of understanding. Familiarity with God's truth can easily become the enemy of understanding. I say that because once we're familiar with a verse or a portion of God's truth, we tend to stop digging for deeper understanding. If, for example, it's a verse that addresses prayer, we tend to pigeonhole it under prayer, and we don't look for what it has to say about other topics. And sometimes when God's people study His Word, they treat it like Aesop's fable on steroids, as if it's just a loose-knit collection of stories, and each story ends with a moral. But Scripture is far more than that. The Word of God is one seamless story from beginning to end, one progressive, tight-knit narrative about what God is up to in the world and what God is up to in you and in me. And every piece of that narrative is tied to every other piece of that narrative. And the verse we're going to consider today is a prime example of what I'm talking about because you rarely hear this verse read this time of year or referenced this time of year. It tends to get pushed aside by the biblical passages that are more clearly associated with the coming of Jesus Christ. It gets pushed aside by the Old Testament messianic prophecies about the coming of Messiah. It tends to get pushed aside by the gospel narratives that tell us about a teenage girl with a child, angel messengers, a paranoid puppet king, shepherds in the fields, Roman taxes, a manger, angel choirs, and Eastern scholars. I've never seen this particular verse on a Christmas card. I've never heard it included in a Christmas musical production. Instead, this verse often sits at the edge of the celebration like the guest of a party that nobody knows, when in reality, this verse should be the guest of honor in our celebration of Jesus' coming because without the reality this verse describes, there wouldn't be a Christmas to celebrate. So today I want to take the forgotten verse and put it center stage. Put it where it belongs and give it the attention it deserves so that it can draw our attention to things we must never, never forget. And so now our text, it comes from the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter and the ninth verse. Paul said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that 
you through his poverty might become rich. Today I want to consider the forgotten word of Christmas. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to faithfully teach and preach your life-changing truth. And by your Spirit, enable each of us to understand it and apply it so that it becomes a part of who we are, so that our lives reflect our alignment with your truth. We can't do these things on our own. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us, melt us, mold us, fill us, and then send us out into the world and use us. And as always, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together this weekend, may the Lord be with you. Christmas is a time of customs, and I like that about Christmas. In our household, it always triggers the annual pilgrimage to the basement where I retrieve those dusty boxes that contain the Christmas decorations that survived the previous Christmas. And that always happens the day after Thanksgiving. When our children were small and living at home, they always embraced decorating the house for Christmas with tremendous enthusiasm that lasted about 20 minutes. And after about 20 minutes, they would begin to disappear one by one. Somebody would have to go to the bathroom. They didn't tell me they were going in Mongolia because they never came back. <laughs> Somebody needed a drink. Somebody wanted to put on socks. Their feet were cold, and I didn't know they had to go shear the sheep and, and weave the socks and make them and put them on their feet. And, and as they would disappear one by one, eventually it would be Karen and I finishing the job, and it would leave her muttering hollow threats about, well, if this is the way it's got to be, we'll just forget the whole thing next year. And nobody took her serious because they knew she was just venting, and next year we were going to sign up to do the whole thing over again. But as we unpack those boxes, things that had been totally off our radar for 11 months suddenly took center stage. That artificial, pre-lit, three-piece Christmas tree that comes in three sections that are easily connected, like an inverted umbrella. And then the various decorations that we had accrued over the years and our vast collection of Christmas ornaments. Some of them made by our children in children's ministry or in their public school. Others given to us as gifts to commemorate a first Christmas. But most of them, most of them purchased two to three days after Christmas at 75% off because that's how you want to get your ornaments. And then last but certainly not least, the German stars, stars made out of paper that had been intricately folded, and those were made for us by Martha Lang, who has long been with Jesus, but for many years was one of the matriarchs of this congregation, and she made us a full set of those as a gesture of her love. So those always have a special place on our tree. But just as Christmas is a time when people pull out decorations that have been forgotten for many months, Christmas also tends to be a time when we pull out certain biblical words and dust them off 
and include them in our vocabulary and put them center stage. And those words readily come to mind, words like joy, peace, fear not. We hear those words other times as we read God's Word, as we worship together, but Christmas is their time to shine. That's their moment on center stage. It's during this season that those words are sung repeatedly and read repeatedly and declared again and again so that we don't forget them. But even when those words have their moments center stage, they can lose some of their luster because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Sometimes it's hard to hold on to joy. Sometimes it's difficult to hold on to peace. Sometimes it's difficult to guard your soul against fear when every day brings the next installment of an ISIS atrocity, terrorist activity, bitter political infighting, government gridlock, growing ethnic divisions, growing ethnic disparities, culture wars, rancorous rhetoric, not to mention our own personal disappointments and heartaches and losses and sorrows. In the midst of those things, sometimes it's hard to hold on to joy and peace and fear not. But we need to hold on to them. And if we're going to hold on to them, I'm convinced we need to see them through the lenses of another biblical word. Another word that gives them greater meaning and greater durability. It's the overlooked word of Christmas, and I'm referring to the word grace. While it's largely absent from our traditional Christmas narratives, it should never, never be absent from our celebration of Jesus' incarnation because the understanding of the word grace sets the foundation for the true understanding of joy and peace and fear not. The incarnation was the inevitable product of God's amazing grace, without which it would have never happened. I say that because the incarnation was conceived in the heart of God as an expression of His grace. It was intricately designed in the mind of God as an expression of His grace. It was carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ as an expression of His grace. When Jesus came, He came wrapped in grace. He came full of grace and truth. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor. Say favor. The unmerited favor of God. And it's the free expression of love to those who deserve something else. And I want to unpack that last phrase for a few moments for reasons that I hope will become very, very clear. I want to unpack that last phrase because to understand grace, to appreciate grace, you first have to know why grace is necessary. If you fail to grasp why grace is necessary, you disrupt the ecological balance of Scripture. Then you end up with a deficient and distorted concept of grace, and grace ceases to be amazing. Now, to understand grace, you have to understand what theologians call the fall. 
And to understand the fall, you have to understand the three-part narrative of God's work. And I want to explain that today, and this is the worldview part of today's teaching. The Bible is a circular book. It ends where it began, albeit with some significant alterations along the way. It is God's narrative of three things, creation, the fall of creation, and the redemption of creation. It is the story of God at work to restore humanity and restore His creation to their original intended splendor. And if you omit any part of that three-part narrative, you end up with bad spiritual information. You end up in a spiritual ditch. So let's unpack the three parts. First of all, the story of creation establishes our worth and our value as human beings because that story informs us that we have been lovingly fashioned in the image of the most perfect being in the universe, God Himself. And when you understand the narrative of creation, it prevents us from thinking of ourselves too poorly and settling for an existence that has no meaning whatsoever. So to summarize, creation means we are not expendable junk because anything that bears God's image has value. And if I could go down a detour for just a brief moment, this is yet another reason why bigotry is such an insult to God. Because even though a person's pigmentation is different than mine, their politics different from mine, their language different from mine, their culture different from mine, like me, they were created in the image of God. And that is to be respected because that gives them dignity, that gives them value, that gives them worth. They are not expendable junk. They are not other to be dismissed. The second part of the narrative is the fall of humanity. And that part of the narrative establishes the fact that the beautiful image of God in us has been severely compromised by virtue of our disobedience. God's image has been fractured in us. It has been defaced in us. We are spiritually broken. We are damaged goods. And worse, we are now deceived by our own pride so that we can't diagnose our condition on our own, let alone fix it. Why is it important to understand that? Well, if understanding creation keeps us from thinking of ourselves too poorly, understanding the fall keeps us from thinking of ourselves too highly. And it reminds us that it is not up to us to define what our existence is all about. That has to come from somebody at a higher pay grade who knows a little bit more than we do. In short, the fall left us rebels at heart and undeserving of favor. And I want to stress that because we live in a very rights-oriented culture where people compete with one another for their rights. 
And I simply want to remind you that based on what Scripture teaches us about the fall of humanity, nobody in this room has a right to God's grace. You may have certain political rights as a citizen of the United States at this time in its history, but no human being has a right to the grace of God. We are wholly undeserving. Finally, we come to the third part of the narrative, the story of redemption. And that establishes that God has made a way whereby we can be restored to the image and the splendor He intended if we will repent and believe. And the good news is He doesn't expect us to do those things entirely on our own because He knows we can't do them entirely on our own. We need His assistance, and He gladly offers to assist us. The story of redemption also makes it clear that if I as an individual reject God's restoration of my life, He's still going to go ahead and carry out His restoration of the earth and His creation because the world doesn't revolve around me. The world doesn't revolve around any of us. If you reject your personal restoration at the hands of God, He still one day is going to reject or redeem His planet and restore His planet because the earth is the Lord's and He's not going to leave His property broken. Now, why is it important to understand that piece? Because when you understand redemption, then you don't think about the future too negatively and you don't drown in despair. It reminds us that evil will not write the final chapters of human history. The reality is they're not up for sale. The final chapters of human history have already been written by God. We're just waiting for them to unfold on His timetable. Creation, I don't think of myself too badly. The fall, I don't think of myself too highly. Redemption, I don't think about the future too negatively. I'm able to live with hope because the story of redemption reminds us that God is sovereign. The monotony of sin will ultimately surrender to His majesty. And I want to remind you, there are few things more monotonous than sin because you keep getting the same results over and over and over and over, and the results are always dehumanizing, debilitating, degrading, and disappointing. Now, once you grasp that Scripture is about this three-part seamless narrative, once you have the view from 30,000 feet, you can begin to better understand the details, including what is meant by the verse we're looking at today. What did Paul mean when he said, he who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich? Now we move into the deepening appreciation part of the teaching. Because of his amazing grace, Jesus made a great sacrifice on our behalf long, long before he laid down his life on the cross. His incarnation was a great sacrifice. You say sacrifice of Christ, most minds rush immediately to the cross. Jesus made a great sacrifice long before the cross. When Paul said, he who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich, he wasn't talking about money. 
I know there are some preachers on television that make everything about money. Please don't listen to them, and please don't give them your money. I like to think there is a special room in hell for those folks. Nor was Paul suggesting that if you're really spiritual, you embrace poverty because Jesus was poor. There's nothing that says Jesus walked among us economically poor. And embracing poverty doesn't make you spiritual, it just makes you poor. That's not Bible. That's human tradition. So what was Paul talking about? The rich becoming poor that the poor might become rich. He was talking about Jesus, and he was talking about the fact that Jesus became poor by doing three things. He surrendered his rank, his position. He surrendered his privilege. And he surrendered his spiritual blessings. First of all, his rank. Before the incarnation, Jesus existed as a part of the Trinity, equal with God the Father, equal with God the Holy Spirit. But a day came, Paul describes it in Philippians 2, where Jesus laid aside, voluntarily laid down his equal rank, his equal position with the Father and with the Spirit. Paul says he emptied himself. He didn't hold on to his equality with the Father and the Spirit, but he laid it aside because somebody had to become flesh, if you understand redemption. Somebody had to become flesh and dwell among us without sin and die on our behalf. And to do that, Jesus laid aside his equality. He took on the role role of being a son, because a son is obedient to his father. And when Jesus took on that role, he said, I only do what the father tells me to do. I only say what the father tells me to say. He also followed the leading of the Holy Spirit, who led him into the wilderness to be tempted, who led him in all that he did. So you find folks like the Jehovah's Witnesses and others who say, well, if Jesus is the Son of God, that means He came into existence after God. That means He isn't God. He isn't divine. And what they don't understand is that He always existed as a part of the Trinity, but there was a day when He assumed the role of being a son so that He might be the servant who would make it possible for you and I to one day be the servants of the living God. God. His existence didn't begin then, but a new role was voluntarily embraced by him. That was the first thing he laid aside. Secondly, he laid aside his privilege because he had always existed like the Father, like the Holy Spirit, as a purely spiritual being. And in the incarnation, he accepted the limitations of being human flesh. He could no longer be omnipresent everywhere in his creation at the same time. He was limited to one place and one moment in time. He accepted more limitations than you and I can even begin to imagine. And that sacrifice wasn't temporary. Remember, after his resurrection, Jesus was in bodily form. His disciples were able to touch him. They ate with him. He's never returning to being a purely spiritual being. Once he took on flesh, he took it on forever. 
When he ascended, he ascended in bodily form. When he returns, we're told every eye will see him. We can't see the Father, he's spirit. We can't see the Holy Spirit, but we will see Jesus. He took on flesh. He took on that limitation forever. After he had ascended and returned, he said, touch me. See, I'm flesh and bone. And an interesting aside at this point, he didn't say, I'm flesh and blood, which is the normal expression. He said, flesh and bone. Why? Because when he ascended after his crucifixion and before his return to the disciples, when he ascended as our high priest, he took his blood into the Holy of Holies in the heavens and he placed it there as the eternal offering for our sins. His blood remained in heaven, so he said, I am now flesh and bone among you, but he was still flesh. See, he made that sacrifice forever, forever. He laid aside his equality with God. We aspire for rank. Jesus had the top rank and set aside for you, for you. And what did you have to offer him? Nothing. Nothing but your brokenness. And then he laid aside spiritual blessing. He had never known anything but perfect communion and love with the Father and the Spirit. But you'll remember there was a moment on that cross when because he became sin. He hadn't sinned, but the curse of my sin was put on him. There was a moment when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, when he became sin, the Father had to look away. There was a moment when he experienced the ultimate wage of sin, separation from the Father. And having known such deep love with the Father, can you imagine what that was like for him? No, you can't. None of us can. None of us can. And even though it was only a few moments to his sinless soul, it must have felt like an eternity. And we know that in death, he literally went to hell and back. Not to suffer, but he went to hell in his spirit to declare release to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses and all the rest who had lived in faith knowing that God would not leave their souls in the place of dead. He was one day coming for them and Jesus went and he led them out. But he actually went to hell and back in his spirit for us. So when it says Jesus became poor, it means Jesus bore all the consequences we would have faced if it were not for his grace. He was willing for a few moments to endure the worst poverty of all because the worst poverty is not the absence of money. The worst poverty is spiritual poverty in the absence of God. I have that on good authority. Jesus said, if a man had the whole world but lost his own soul, he's a loser. It profits him nothing. He went to hell and back for us. And now he offers us the chance to be restored. And all of it undeserved. Say undeserved. Undeserved. He offers the return to splendor when we don't deserve it. That's grace. He offers it when we could never deserve it. That's grace. Now, much of what he offers us still awaits us. 
still awaits us. Everything hasn't unfolded in God's perfect plan. But we have every confidence that it will unfold just as He promised. Because if you're holding a check and the signature on it is God's signature, that check will never bounce. That check will be good no matter when you cash it in. Now, once you grasp that narrative, once you grasp undeserved grace, then you're ready to hold on to your joy and hold on to your peace and hold on to your fear, not confidence, with strength. Those things aren't easily shaken. If I could be very, very transparent for just a few moments, there are many times I stand before you and I declare the glories of God with a broken heart because of my human experience. I don't share them with you because my calling is not to share with you my heartaches. My calling is to declare to you the unsearchable riches of Christ who is greater than all of our heartaches put together. But in this Christmas season, Karen and I have been to hell and back with a family situation that sits on us every day. It's been the most painful time of my life. But I can testify to you that while we are walking through a living hell, my soul is not shaken. My joy has not been hindered. My peace has not been disturbed. My fear not is not compromised. My soul is well. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm excited about who He is, who He is in me, who He is in the church, about where we're going together, and no weapon formed against me will prosper. And if it doesn't kill you, it just makes you stronger. But you don't get there by reading peace and joy and fear not at Christmas. You get there by understanding what God is up to, what grace is all about, what redemption is all about. So let me say this in closing. I know that many of you struggle to get through the holidays. Some struggle because of people who are no longer here. And when you gather together, their absence gnaws at you. Some of you are struggle because of the people who are still here. <laughs> Amen? Yeah, I mean, you can get hurt by missing those you dearly loved and being with those you'd love to miss. You can ache because there's an empty seat at the table or you can ache because it's filled and the person who's filling it is really prickly. Okay? But I want you to remember, if Christmas is a hard time for you, don't center your Christmas emotions on your earthly family being together around the table in blissful harmony. Center your Christmas celebration on you being a part of God's family and having a reserved seat at that table that will be the greatest table in human history, the reception table for that day when Christ returns and is joined to His bride, the church. You have a reserved seat there. There are no bad seats at that table, and your seat has been paid for in full. And you will be joining your brothers and sisters in Christ for an 
eternity that is beyond your imagination. So don't center your celebration on humans at your dinner table. Center it on where you're going to sit one day at God's table and the fact that God is going to be there and that one day your splendor will be fully restored. The image of God in you will be fully restored. Life will become an awesome, unspeakable, incredible journey and adventure. Don't compare your Christmas circumstances with greeting cards, happy ending specials, and certainly not with other people's Christmases, especially the ones that write you notes about how everybody in their family is blessed and successful. Because let's be frank, if you're hurting and you get those cards, that's a downer, right? It's a downer. Don't compare your circumstances with others. Compare your circumstances with what they're going to be, with what they're going to be. When every promise Jesus made is fulfilled, when every blessing God has for you is bestowed, when you have moved from being spiritually poor to being spiritually rich. And if you'll do that, you'll be able to recover your joy. You'll be able to recover your peace. You'll be able to recover your fear not. You'll be able to appreciate them at a deeper level than ever before. Let me close by saying, the greatest carol of Christmas is not Silent Night, Joy to the World, or Hark the Herald Angels. The greatest carol Carol of Christmas is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found was blind, but now I see. And when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amen? Amen. Let me just pray in closing. If you came today not knowing Jesus, and God has used something in this teaching to make you aware of your need, that you're still fallen and you're not yet redeemed. And if you'd like to change your category, if you'd like to change your status, God's eager to do that. That's why Jesus came. Where you are, in your heart, where God knows your every thought, will you simply call on the Lord and say, Jesus, save me. I've sinned against you, I'm broken. I can't fix myself. I need you to save me and change my heart. I confess you as Lord and believe that you were raised from the dead. Save me, Jesus, save me. 
Father, we're so thankful that at the heart of Christmas is the story of grace. That he who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. In light of that narrative, help us to not only hold on to our peace and joy and fear not confidence, help us to grow them and share them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.